Well, I've had the good pleasure to be preaching through the book of Ephesians when I've come up to preach. And uh, you may recall on Valentine's Day, I preached and I actually skipped forward a little bit in Ephesians 5 to the end of the chapter, which spoke of marriage, seeming as that seemed fit to me to do on that day. But I promised that we would double back and pick up the beginning of Ephesians 5. And so we do today. Uh, We see at the beginning of Ephesians 5, the first 14 verses that we will look at today, a passage which concentrates on two groups of people. One, we could call the sons of disobedience. The other, children of the light. Follow along with me now as I read about these two groups from the inspired word of God. Therefore, Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks." For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest his light. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word and pray that this morning as it is preached that you might speak to our hearts. Help me to stay out of the way of your working. If I say anything which is not in accordance with your will, Lord, I pray that it would fall to the ground and not even be observed. I pray that you would use the power of your spirit to take your word into our lives and make us into the people you would have us be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said before, there are two groups of people that are talked about in this passage. We have uh, children of light and sons of disobedience. And what I want to do is I want to focus first on, on the sons of disobedience. The reason I want to do this is because this is a group uh, of whom we learn in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 3 specifically, that, that among these people, among the children of disobedience, we all once conducted ourselves. We are by nature members of this group. It is our natural state. We are born into sin and as a result are among the children of of disobedience, sons of disobedience, as Paul calls them here. Now, this is true of us apart from the gracious election 
of God, apart from his regenerating and redeeming work in our lives, we would still be in that group. So what does this group look like? Well, it is marked, Paul says here, by the unfruitful works of darkness. This is mentioned explicitly in verse 11, but it is actually seen throughout the passage that this is what it is marked by. And we see these unfruitful works of darkness Some of them mentioned in verses 3 and 4. Paul divides some of them up into kind of two groups here. Uh, In verse 3, he talks about uh, some of our desires and what is done with them. When he mentions fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, we see a consistent thread that is woven through these. They all deal with us wanting those things which are not one's own. And whether it is a person that we want or an experience that we want, or whether it is some other thing that we want, to want what we do not have is at its core idolatry, as Paul says in verse 5. This is because an idol is anything that we look to to give us the things which only God can ultimately provide. Our satisfaction, our meaning, our purpose, These are things that only God can provide us. And at times we turn away from God and look to other things to provide these for us. And Paul says that when we do this, we are idolaters. To fail to trust in God and God alone for provision of these things is idolatry. And we are all guilty of it at times. In verse 4, he goes on to speak of another set of works, another set of deeds. They, they deal with our words and the way that they are spoken. And we see in these verses, he speaks of filthiness and foolish talking and coarse jesting. He's not talking about all joking around here. He's not prohibiting the use of a sense of humor. It is allowed to be humorous. It is good to laugh. That is a wonderful blessing. What he is specifically talking about here, though, is the type of joking, the type of talking that we might call dirty jokes or even double entendres, those things which are, are inappropriate. And we ought to know that they are inappropriate. We ought to not use them. You see, the, the language that is spoken by the sons of disobedience ought to be different than the language that is spoken by children of the light. It should be a different language altogether. And if it is not, in your case, a different language altogether, then Paul says you have a problem because it should be. He moves on and speaks of the nature of these unfruitful works. We see in verse 12 where he says that they are shameful. In fact, in verse 12, he says it's not only shameful, to do them, he says, it's shameful even to speak of these things. This is a high level of shamefulness, is it not? He's not just prohibiting our involvement in them, but saying that to even speak about them is shameful. And he goes on to say, uh, back in uh, verse 3 also, that they are not even to be named among you. William Hendrickson suggests that what he is getting at with this statement when he says they're not even to be named among you. He's getting at the idea that so far should you be removed from the sin of this type that the very suspicion of its existence among you should be banished once and for all. It's kind of like this. It's as if all the broccoli and asparagus is gone. It's disappeared 
and somebody came to me and accused me of having eaten the broccoli and the asparagus. Now, if that happened, my wife and my mother would both quickly jump to my defense and assure my accuser it could not have been Pete who ate the broccoli, the asparagus. Take my word for it. Nothing could be farther from the truth. It is completely implausible because he has maintained an entire life of not eating broccoli and asparagus. It's kind of a funny, humorous uh, way to look at it, but you see our, our life should be that way. My life has been lived in, in such a steadied consistency of not eating broccoli and asparagus that the accusation that I had eaten it all would fall to the ground immediately. So too ought we live the kind of life of consistency in our holiness that if these types of accusations were levied against us, that anyone who knows us would immediately be able to say, that cannot be true. There is no way. It is completely and in every way implausible. This is the kind of life that we need to be living. And why do we need to be living this kind of life? Why do we need to be avoiding even the hint that these types of sins might be in our lives? It is because Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that they are not fitting for the saints. Now when we see the word saints, some of us have different things that pop into mind. Some of us, it might be the football team that just won the Super Bowl a couple months ago. For some of us who are less sports-minded or maybe just have our attitude and our priorities a little bit more in line. It might be the idea that we see uh, in a more generally cultural understanding of what saints means. And, and our culture understands this idea of saints to be those who are super spiritual, those who are, who are really, really holy. You know, not just normal churchgoers, but, but if you painted a portrait of them, they would have one of those halos over their head and everything they do is right and they probably have pulled off a miracle or two somewhere along the way. And they are ultra holy. Well, this is a wrong understanding. When the Bible talks about saints, he is talking about, it is talking about those whom God has chosen for his own. Those whom he has set apart to be his and so we must not fall into this understanding when we read about saints that it is those who are the super spiritual people, those who are the top one half of one percent maybe of all the churchgoers. No, the saints are those who have given their life to Christ Jesus, who trust in him for salvation, those whom God has called and has saved and has made holy. You see, in one sense, it is right that saints are those people who are holy. But they are holy not because of their own deeds, not because of their own actions. They are holy because God has made them holy. He has cleansed them from their sin by the blood of Christ, and he has robed them in Christ's righteousness. And so if you trust in Christ for salvation, you have not only salvation, but you have his righteousness, you have his holiness, and God indeed sees you as holy. And the thrust of what Paul is saying here is, since you are holy, you need to act like it. You need to live out the life that you have. You need to live like who you are. 
You need to live out the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is not saying earn your salvation because to say that would go against just about everything else that Paul says anywhere else in Scripture. What he is saying is you need to work out the salvation that God has already graciously given you. You need to live out the holiness that he has bestowed upon you. Be who you already are. In talking about these deeds that we need to avoid, Paul goes on in verses 5 and 6 to speak of their result. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are strong words. No inheritance. The wrath of God. These are things that I don't need to tell you. You want to avoid. It's similar to what he said back in the beginning of Ephesians 2. You might recall it's been a while since we've been there. But he said, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Just as the others. That's what we were. You see, you used to be just like them. But by the grace of God, you no longer are. You are saints, God's holy ones. Be who you are. Be who you are. And who exactly is that? Well, Paul says in verse 8, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What exactly does it mean to walk as children of the light? He talks about that a little bit. In verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Notice he he doesn't say have no contact. To, To have no contact with these unfruitful works of darkness would be virtually impossible in our world because they are taking place all around us. We would have to wall ourselves off. But even then, because of our own sinfulness, we would have contact with the works of darkness. So that is not what he is saying. The Greek term here actually is is kind of the idea of a partnership. And there are places where it says in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, for instance, that you do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? That's not exactly what he's saying here, though, in this passage. Because what he's saying here is not that you are to have no fellowship with the doers of the works. He says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works themselves. We are to not incorporate them into our lives. They ought not to be in our lives. 
We need to not give place to the devil, as Paul says just a paragraph earlier in Ephesians 4.27. I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, do not give the devil a foothold. And that's the idea. If we give the devil a foothold and allow those sins to be in our lives, we become complacent to them. We will become desensitized to them. And slowly they creep in further and further and further until we are completely overtaken by them. We wake up one day and say, how did I ever get to this place? Do not give that first inch. Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give him a a stronghold, a base of operations from which he might devour us. Because that is his goal. He does desire to devour us. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you give him a foothold, you are making it easy for him. Be diligent. Do not let a day go by. Do not let a moment go by without seeking holiness, without repenting of your sin. Pray that God might make your sin known to you so that you might repent of it. Be active and diligent in this effort. You know, I I hate weeding. I don't know about you. Some of you gardeners out there might actually enjoy it. I can't imagine how anybody would enjoy weeding, but I, I guess there are some who do, but try to, if you are in that state, put yourself in mind. I hate weeding, but I've found that it is a hundred percent harder if you just say, well, I, I hate it. I'm not going to do it. And I'm just going to put it off and not do it, not do it. And then down the road at some point, eventually, you know, annually you go out and weed. Well, at that point, the weeds have completely overtaken, haven't they? Uh, they, they've, they've grown up, they've, they've planted roots deeper, and the job of removing the weeds from the garden becomes all that much harder because you have not done it along the way. My experience is that it's the same way with sin. Just as weeds anchor their roots beneath the soil where they can't be seen and they spread so too We need to expose the roots of sin. We need to yank them out as soon as they are present so that they might not dig down deeper into the soil of our lives, so that they might not spread and have a presence. We need to expose them at their root and have fellowship instead of with the unfruitful works of darkness, rather have fellowship with the holiness of God. We expose those works of darkness. We do not be like him of who Jeremiah speaks when he says, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. We realize that God has a will for us in the way we are to live our lives and for the world, and we will not compromise on that. We will not say, oh, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we'll all be fine, because we will not all be fine. I promise you that. And God's word promises you that. We will be fine insofar only as we trust in Christ Jesus. 
And so, because we want to see others trust in Christ Jesus as well, we must be, as Jesus himself proclaims to us in the Sermon on the Mount, salt and light in the world. We must be salt and light. For it is true indeed that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So too we must have a visible presence in the world around us. For without the presence of godliness, our culture will slide down the slippery slope toward immorality. We have seen this in our lifetime in the generations that have passed. This is indeed true. Our culture is slipping and has slipped. D.A. Carson illustrates this in his recent book, Scandalous. He speaks of the movie Titanic, which up until just recently was the highest grossing movie of all time. Uh, it was displaced by the movie Avatar. Both of them actually uh, were films which were made by James Cameron. And, and when he made the movie Titanic, it's the story, of course, of the great ship which struck an iceberg and sank. And on board that luxurious ship were were the richest people in the world. But in the movie, we see that that these rich men start to scramble for the, the few and inadequate lifeboats. And they push the women and children out of the way as they scurry to save themselves. And we see the In the movie, the British sailors draw out handguns and fire them in the air and say, Stop! Stand back! Stand back! Women and children first! Carson points out that in reality, though, nothing like this actually happened on the Titanic. You see, the universal testimony of the witnesses and the survivors was that that men universally hung back and urged women and children onto the lifeboats. That even the richest and most privileged men in the world who happened to be on that ship at the time did not see a right for themselves to be on those lifeboats and they indeed drowned. When the film was reviewed by the New York Times, the reviewer asked why James Cameron would have, when he made this movie, just play so fast and loose with the facts? Why would he change this so dramatically? Why would he have this willful distortion of history? And then the reviewer answered his own question. For if they had told the truth, no one would have believed it. Carson goes on to say this. I have seldom read a more damning indictment of the development of Western culture, especially Anglo-Saxon culture in the last century. 100 years ago, there remained in our culture enough residue of the Christian virtue of self-sacrifice for the sake of others, of the moral imperative that seeks others' good at personal expense, that Christians and non-Christians alike thought it noble, if unremarkable, to choose death for the sake of others. A mere century later, such a course is judged so unbelievable that the history has to be distorted. We look around the world around us and we see this to be true. We see the truth that our culture has slidden in its morality immensely. And we lament that fact. We lament it, yet we are often unwilling to have a sustaining 
presence in the midst of that culture. We are unwilling to be salt and light. We are unwilling to expose the ugliness of sin by the beauty of Christ's body in the presence of it. We wall ourselves off in Christian ghettos at times when God calls us to be salt and light in the world. We need to be in the world as salt and light, exposing the deeds of darkness. Well, how do we do this? Well, it's kind of tricky if you follow Paul because he says that we're not even supposed to to speak of these things. It's shameful to even speak of them. How do you expose them but not speak of them? Uh, It seems to be kind of at odds with itself. Well, I, I think that there's a diagnostic that we can run, and that is to ask the question, what is your attitude in dealing with them? Is your attitude one of prurient appeal? Do you desire to toy with sin? to play with it, to be titillated by it. If you do, then you are on dangerous ground and I tell you to flee. Do not go there. Perhaps you're coming at it with a prideful approach, saying, I am so much better than all these who are sinning. And if that is your attitude, then I tell you this. No, you are not. For you are just like them. You were dead in the same sinfulness until God made you alive. And he did so only on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of anything you have done. So if it is not on the basis of prurient appeal or prideful approach, how do we come to these situations? We should do so humble and hurting and helpful in our attitude. Become humble, realizing that I am no better than those who are sinning around me. I am merely one beggar showing another beggar where he might find bread. We come hurting, pained that God's honor is being transgressed by sin, that it is being torn down because of the sinful actions of those around us. And hurting, pained, that others are living a life of emptiness. We are told in God's word that we are to love our neighbors and pray for our enemies. If we are loving them and praying for them, then we cannot help but be hurting for them as they live in their lost estate. So our attitude must be humble, it must be hurting, and it must be helpful. Helpful to God's purposes, seeking to expose the sin so that God may be honored and helpful in that it is helpful to those around us that they might see their sin and acknowledge it and repent of it and like us find forgiveness in Christ Jesus from it. You could sum it up with what Paul tells us to do in verse 2. He says, walk in love also told in verse 4 that our lives should be marked by the giving of thanks. You see, thankfulness covers and counters the covetousness that we talked about before. Covetousness wants what is not its own. Thankfulness realizes that what it has is not deserved, but is a matter of grace. 
And so we must be thankful, realizing that every good thing we have is not a matter of us having earned it, but rather is a matter of Christ having earned it on our behalf and blessing us with us, giving it to us as a matter of his grace. So how do we do this? How do we live lives that are loving and lives that are thankful? Well, the key to that is found in the very first verse of this passage. The very first verse where he says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. First we see in the therefore that Therefore, therefore, what what is the therefore dealing with? It's, of course, hearkening back to what has immediately preceded it in Ephesians 4.32, where he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And so this therefore reaches back into chapter 4, and it undergirds all that follows in chapter 5 is the reason and the foundation that Paul has for telling the Ephesians and us to do those things which we ought to do, and to avoid those things that we ought to avoid. It is the fact that God in Christ forgave you. He does not say that that you should do what I say so that God will love you, and so that God will forgive you, and so that God will make you his children. No, that is not what he says. What he says is that God has loved you, though you were completely unlovely. He says that God has forgiven you, though you deserved condemnation. And he said God has made you his dearly beloved children, though you were sons of disobedience. Therefore, because this is true, because of the amazing grace of God, do what I say. What exactly does he say to do? He says, be imitators of God as dear children. Children imitate their parents, for better or worse. Sometimes we see children running around doing the same great things that their parents do. Sometimes we see them doing the same terrible things that their parents do. Children imitate their parents, and they imitate them all the more when they are loved by their parents and they love their parents in return. And so Paul says here that we are to imitate God as dear children, dear children, children who are loved by our parents, God. We are to be imitators. It calls to mind the question, how can we possibly imitate God, God who is infinite, who is beyond our understanding? How can we imitate him? Well, we can imitate him only because he has made himself known. And he has done it through the person of Jesus Christ and through his written word. And so it is that we ought to be, as Paul says in verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. We study Christ. We study his word. We spend time digging through it, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, listening to it preached, praying through it, going back to it time and time again, every day opening up our Bible, being conformed to the will of God as we read it in his word. And as we do, we see 
who Christ is and we see what Christ has done and we hear him say I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep we see him say no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord and we see in 1 John 3 by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, it's not just enough to know what is right. We also have to do it. And that is where it gets tricky. Because sometimes we can know what is right, but we can't get it done. We don't have that strength. We don't have that power. We just can't do it. But that's the beauty of the gospel here. Not only are we to live as a response to his gracious love and his loving provision, we We are supposed to actually live by his power and not by our own. In verse 14 it reads, Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You see, it is Christ who gives us light. We cannot become children of the light other than by reflecting the light of Christ. It is his light that reflects off of us. We are not responsible to create the light ourselves, but rather we, cre- we reflect that light that Christ is shining on us. So in closing, I ask you, which kind of person are you? Christ beckons you to be children of the light. He not only beckons you, but he motivates you by his example. He empowers you by his spirit. And he illumines you with his light. Be children of the light. Because that is who you are. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have indeed made us children of the light. May your light shine brightly and reflect off us, illuminating the world around us, that we may indeed be a light to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.